The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. What you don't know can hurt you. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, March 26, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. One of the greatest frustrations of being stuck in traffic was not knowing what was causing the holdup, not knowing why our life and plans had come to a standstill. A lot of people don't take well to an inconvenience for which they see no cause. The willingness to change our lives has increased in direct proportion to the number of coronavirus cases where we live. A geospatial analysis company has GPS data showing that the more cases in our neck of the woods, the less we travel. The drop in travel reflects the social distancing that unfortunately lags behind the spread of the disease. GPS data shows that the people living in places where there are fewer confirmed cases are still moving about freely. People in hard-hit states, including New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Minnesota, Utah, California, and Washington, are staying put more. And it's not just in the U.S. The tech firm says it's seeing this same trend worldwide. The techies say the biggest drop in travel came on March 15th once New York, Illinois, and Massachusetts had shut down the restaurants. To many people, it was those closures that made this serious. Apparently, people have to see a threat firsthand or feel the effects of the threat to even begin to take the threat seriously. Much of the South and the Midwest remain unmoved and continue to be on the move. Why be inconvenienced for a reason you cannot see? That is certainly the belief in places like Wellsville, Kansas, when it comes to our response to the coronavirus. Wellsville is the home of Walmart worker Brandon Christ, who posted a meme on Facebook asking why everything's being shut down when no one he knows has the disease. Shut down, said the meme, out of irrational fear. It continued, if you have not previously feared the power of the media, you should be terrified of them now. They are exerting their power to shut down America. Brandon's Facebook friends chimed in with likes and amens. This is BS, wrote one of Brandon's friends, adding, I'm not changing anything I do. These were not college kids forging ahead with spring break on a beach. These were the people of a rural community in northwestern Kansas. This was nearly two-thirds of America. A Pew Research poll a week ago showed that 62% of adults believed the media was exaggerating the danger posed by COVID-19. Like Brandon Christ and his Facebook friends, millions of Americans believe that even when there were 9,000 dead, that the coronavirus crisis is a hoax or BS. Brandon told the Washington Post he was still planning his trip to visit family in Arizona and to take them out to dinner. That was before restaurants were closing in growing numbers. Inconveniently for Brandon, parts of the Grand Canyon were already closed, so that side trip would have to wait, and he wasn't happy about it. If we ever needed some fear of the unknown, we could use some now. Yesterday, the head of the World Health Organization said the time to act was yesterday. Over at the Baptist Church in Wellsville, Kansas, the pastor advised his flock to turn off the TV, saying the coverage was, quote, stoking fear. One of his parishioners told the Post, we just need to trust the Lord to solve this. Pointing out that no one he knows has the virus, the churchgoer added, 
we shouldn't be thrown into a state of panic because of what we hear rather than what we see. Another parishioner said he wanted to know how the virus, quote, got out of China, suggesting it came from a biological warfare lab. It didn't. He's a retired chemistry teacher, by the way, and his thinking may explain the sudden rise in attacks on Asian Americans across the country. Televangelist Jerry Falwell Jr. believes the virus is a North Korean bioweapon. It isn't. Some believe the virus was created with money from Bill Gates and or George Soros. It isn't them either. Still another Kansas churchgoer said, It's mass hysteria caused by the liberal media. They want to take Trump and our economy down. With that, she took her family to a theater to see a movie. A short time later, a man in a neighboring Kansas county was in the hands of the health department after developing a fever. That is what we were up against a week ago in our battle against this deadly virus, and unimaginably, it's what we're still up against today a week later. The New York Times, meanwhile, was watching social media posts in Kenner, Louisiana, where a 45-year-old man who was never sick had suddenly come down with a fever. His wife was online looking at her friends' posts, making jokes about the coronavirus, complete with Fox News talking points, Rush Limbaugh quotes, and eye-roll emojis. And then she saw a post asking the same question that Brandon Crist had asked with a meme back in Kansas. The question was, does anyone really have the virus? The fevered man's wife started typing. I've seen a lot of people taking this virus lightly and joking about it, adding that her husband, Mark, has tested positive to the coronavirus. Over the weekend, as Mark's fever approached 102 degrees, her doctor in that New Orleans suburb told her it was the flu. By Wednesday, his wife found him sitting on the edge of the bathtub, wrapped in a towel and talking to himself. He is now quarantined in a local ICU, and were it not for the ventilator doing his breathing, he'd likely be dead by now. I'm telling you this very private information, wrote his wife on Facebook, because I care about my friends. This virus has been in our community a while now without us knowing. She wrote that doctors told her it would take a long time for her husband of 12 years to recover. His wife cannot visit him. She's quarantined at home now with her son. And the toys people are sending to the boy haven't helped. His mom says he told her, I don't want any toys. I want my dad. Mark and his wife are both Republicans, and so are most of their friends. Oh my gosh, wrote one, adding, this is real. Quoting another suburban New Orleans Republican, it's not just us. Everyone around the world is reacting like this. Why would everyone throw things out of proportion just to try to hurt the president? In the last week of February, about 94% of Democrats were concerned about COVID-19, and only about 39% of Republicans were concerned. By late last week, that 39% concerned among Republicans jumped to 77%. The onset of death, a stock market crash, and the spread of the disease to all 50 states turned around many Republicans, including some who had believed it was all a Democratic hoax, promoted by the media. The president had made the same false claim. Non-believers were starting to believe. And while Democrats and Republicans continue to fight over policy, they increasingly believe together in the perils of this virus, and they are increasingly focused on a mutual goal, beating this thing. But millions of Americans from that Baptist church in Kansas to the beaches of Florida and California were still reluctant to cooperate. 
As the virus spreads into their own communities, their views are likely to change too, albeit perhaps too late. It's just too bad lives had to be lost in the process. Last week, I reported on 155 American deaths from coronavirus. This morning, there were well over 1,000 U.S. deaths with nearly 70,000 confirmed cases. 13 people died in just one New York City hospital yesterday. Worldwide, more than 22,000 people have died with nearly a half million cases. It was strict social distancing that served so well to contain the viral spread in China, South Korea, and other Asian countries, where the number of deaths has now fallen, with few of any new cases reported. Elsewhere, including here in the U.S., the virus continues to spread and the death counts go higher. Without strict measures, COVID-19 spreads quickly. The World Health Organization says it took three months for the planet to get to 100,000 cases and only 12 days for that number to double. The best way to stop it is for everyone who can to stay home and listen to the scientists, not the president. Tragically, a good deal of information about the virus comes directly from the president of the United States. The most glaring example came this past week as a president eager to deliver good news to both voters and Wall Street crowed about a drug that could treat this coronavirus. Chloroquine is a sledgehammer of a drug, and it's been used to treat malaria since 1944, but it has not been approved by the FDA to treat COVID-19 because there have been no clinical trials and very little testing. Trump incorrectly claimed the drug had been approved to treat this new virus and called it a game-changer. He was not only wrong, he was twisting the truth to try to bring voters and investors some good news that isn't news at all. The nation's leader was instilling false hope and promoting an untested and possibly dangerous way to treat this new disease, especially for heart patients. Trump harped about the drug for several days and then came word from Nigeria that three people using the drug had died after overdosing on that extremely powerful medicine. It does important work for lupus patients and for people with rheumatoid arthritis, and pharmacies are running out of it. In some cases, doctors have hoarded the drug for friends and family in case the virus strikes them. And then came word from Arizona that a man had died after trying to self-treat his COVID-19 symptoms with a product used to clean aquariums because it contained a chemical from the drug Trump was calling a game-changer. It certainly was a game-changer for this Maricopa County couple. He's now dead, and she's in the hospital after listening to the president instead of doctors and scientists. In discussing chloroquine, Trump repeated the question he'd asked of black voters in 2016. What do we have to lose? In these cases, what we had to lose, on his advice, were human lives. Dr. Trump had ignored the Hippocratic oath taken by doctors, first, do no harm. The Arizona widow, now elevated to stable condition after being in critical, says, we saw Trump on TV, that this was safe. Trump kept saying it was basically pretty much a cure. Now, she's urging the public not to, quote, believe anything the president says and to rely on doctor's orders instead. This was the same consoler-in-chief who tried to reassure us with a promise that anyone who wanted a test for the virus could get one. It wasn't true then. It isn't true now. 
it was government infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci who stepped up to the microphone to carefully contradict Trump's false claims. Fauci says hand washing and social distancing are the most important things we can do to stop the spread and cut the number of deaths, which is why we should listen only to the scientist and not the president of the United States who is in over his head. The World Health Organization has warned us against using untested drugs to treat this coronavirus, but some doctors have been doing it anyway. Two days ago, the White House briefing again featured the president instead of the vice president who'd supposedly been put in charge of the coronavirus response and the briefings. And missing from the Monday briefing this time was Dr. Anthony Fauci. Instead of the doctor, we got politicians loyal to Trump. Instead of Dr. Fauci, who had just contradicted the president, there was, for example, an appearance from Attorney General Bill Barr, who talked about cracking down on fraudulent coronavirus products and the hoarding of medical supplies. Although Dr. Fauci reemerged on Tuesday, he was missing from that briefing on Monday. Americans had tuned in to see what the doc had to say, and they were not happy when he was not there. And it was in that Monday briefing that Trump defied the advice of governors and medical experts, including his own Surgeon General, and insisted that America will again and soon be open for business, very soon. We cannot, he said, let the cure be worse than the problem itself. What Trump was saying was that it was more important to get the economy moving again than to keep people locked down. He wants to end the social distancing just days from now, and he made that known on the first day that U.S. deaths from COVID-19 crossed the 500 mark with more than 100 in a single day. Our country wasn't built to be shut down, he said, as well over 16 red and blue states and more than a half dozen red and blue cities issued stay-at-home orders. About 54% of the U.S. population has been told to stay home. Los Angeles Mayor Gil Garcetti says his city may be locked down for months. But Trump told Americans not to listen to their doctors, not to listen to their governors, but to listen to him instead. If it were up to the doctors, said Trump, they'd say, let's keep it shut down. Let's shut down the entire world and let's keep it shut down for a couple of years. In truth, doctors have only spoken in terms of weeks. No medical experts have spoken in terms of years, certainly. But Trump never lets the truth get in the way of his agenda, which in this case is getting the economy moving again in time for the election and reopening the half dozen Trump businesses he's been forced to close because of the lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, and social distancing. His Surgeon General said Monday, we really, really need everyone to stay at home. There are not enough people out there who are taking this seriously, end quote. Still, Trump was insisting on restarting the economy against the advice of the medical experts who say the worst is yet to come, likely to strike after the federal government's social distancing advice expires. I'm not looking at months, said Trump on Monday. I can tell you this right now. We're going to be opening our country. Medical experts say that could cause the disease to surge as people resume passing around the virus, as is happening right now in Hong Kong, where they let up too early. Within a week, the U.S. is expected to lead the world in the number of infections. In a week or two, the U.S. is expected to be the new epicenter of the virus. The head of the World Health Organization says the pandemic is accelerating. The less we sequester, the more overwhelmed our hospitals become and the more people will die. About 70,000 Americans are already infected and the numbers are rising, not falling. But Trump's people are backing him up 
Economic advisor Larry Kudlow told Fox News, the president is right. The cure can't be worse than the disease, and we're going to have to make some difficult trade-offs. What Kudlow was saying was that, sure, people will die, but it's worth it to get the money moving again. It is true that the U.S. is suffering the kind of economic punishment it has never experienced before, with several million people laid off over the past two weeks. But Trump and Wall Street want Americans to go back to work, whatever the risk. They want to abandon the best tool we have for saving lives, including the lives of our health care workers, and that's isolation. Texas Republican Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick told Fox News on Monday he is among those in the high-risk pool, but says he'd be willing to risk his life to preserve the country for his children and grandchildren. And he thinks, quote, lots of grandparents feel the same way. In other words, Grandma would be glad to die if it would make the economy better for the kids. Although you may have seen video of Trump taking out his frustrations on NBC's Peter Alexander, it was really the Washington Post that had made him angry that day. The Post published a story Friday that U.S. intelligence was warning the administration as early as January 3rd about the worldwide danger posed by COVID-19. At the time, the reports were classified about the global danger, and the warnings were ominous. January and February and beyond, as the intelligence community's warnings got louder, Trump and his loyal Republican lawmakers refused to take action, played down the threat that U.S. intelligence had found so alarming. Our intel network focused on watching the virus spread in China and warned the administration that Chinese officials were playing down the threat and silencing the doctors and scientists who had spoken of the pandemic. Trump had shut down travel from China, an important step, but seemingly dropped the ball after that, focusing on a sliding stock market and how it might affect his re-election. Although Trump could not silence the doctors and scientists here, he too played down the threat as the virus was carried out of China by travelers. Congress didn't take it seriously either, and it had seen the same intelligence reports as Trump. In fact, it was right after that briefing that Republican Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr sold as much as $1.7 million in stocks just in the nick of time, just before the value of those stocks plummeted on Wall Street. Three other Republican lawmakers also dumped stocks just before the crash, as did California Democrat Dianne Feinstein, who says her stocks were traded by a third party. We will circle back to this story. But it wasn't until health officials started insisting on social distancing and isolation, and when hospitals shouted they could not accommodate the coming surge of patients, not until then did the president and the Congress begin to come to terms with this new reality. Nearly three months after we had learned of a dangerous new virus spreading throughout and beyond China. The system was blinking red, according to an administration official who spoke anonymously to the Washington Post, adding they just couldn't get him to do anything about it. Despite multiple efforts, Health Secretary Alex Azar wouldn't get a chance to even speak with Trump until January 18th, and when Azar tried to convey the coming crisis, Trump was at that moment focused on vaping, which he considered an election issue. He wanted to know when the flavors would be back on the market. Publicly, Trump called the virus threat a media hoax aimed at destroying his presidency. Three days later, the first American died from the disease. It wasn't until January 27th that the White House staff agreed that this virus, if not addressed, could in fact be the thing that kills Trump's re-election chances. 
It was January 27th when the White House realized that COVID-19 would soon dominate our lives for many months and most certainly through Election Day. Then Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney began calling daily meetings for updates on the spread. But the Post sources in the White House say Trump was unconcerned because the number of cases was still quite low. Remember, he had told the public he thought the numbers would soon be down to zero. He wasn't just wrong. He was bizarrely, dangerously wrong. It was Trump's inattentiveness at these daily coronavirus briefings that led him to say on February 19th, more than six weeks after the first word of this dangerous virus, Trump said, I think it's going to work out fine. That is what Chinese President Xi Jinping had told him anyway. Some Trump advisors told him Xi was being dishonest about the numbers, but true to character, Trump would rather believe another member of the big boys club than to listen to our government's own incredible experts, including some he had appointed. Nearly a week later, Trump tweeted, the coronavirus is very much under control in the USA, and famously, stock markets starting to look very good to me. It's going to be fine, Trump said on February 10th. We're in very good shape, he said on February 14th. Like other Republicans, Trump didn't begin to rethink that view until the markets had tanked and the virus had spread from coast to coast. The administration was not alone in being slow to recognize the virus for what it is. It was more than six weeks after the first case was found in Chicago that the World Health Organization finally declared a pandemic. By that time, 110 million Americans were already destined to be stricken with the disease Nearly 8 million would need hospital beds, and about 600,000 of us would die. Not yet knowing what kind of illness it was, officials at the administration's Health and Human Services Department were expecting an influenza pandemic and launched a study of the nation's preparedness. That operation was codenamed Crimson Contagion. It ran the involved agencies through a series of drills, and what it found was extremely discouraging. The nation was underprepared for a pandemic. The government was uncoordinated in its response strategy, and the agencies most involved were quite underfunded. Hospitals weren't sure what equipment they'd need for a virus that remained mysterious. Some states in the exercises closed their schools, while others did not. The exercises were eerily similar to what has actually happened since with coronavirus. What the report found out about our preparedness was not good. The report was presented in October of last year, and it was marked not to be disclosed. Three weeks after that report, Trump floated a 2021 budget proposal that would cut another $700 million from the Centers for Disease Control. Nine of the nation's former intelligence officials wrote this week in a letter that Trump's gutting of the government's scientific brain power has made matters worse. They may have to cancel trash pickup in Dayton, Ohio soon. Swamped with unexpected expenses and on the front lines of this battle, mayors and governors have grown increasingly angry about the federal government's slow response and about unsatisfied promises from the president. Suddenly, Trump was overwhelmed by criticism. Citizens were dying. His economy was tanking. The virus was overshadowing his presidency and his bid for re-election. His Oval Office address had gotten terrible reviews from all corners. Just as a simple coronavirus, the common cold, had brought down the giant Martian machines and H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, a coronavirus threatened to bring down a president 
when nothing else in his presidential history would. He finally attended one of Mike Pence's daily media briefings on the coronavirus battle. He put on a USA baseball cap and took over the briefing, declaring himself a wartime president against an invisible enemy. He hasn't missed a briefing since, giving him ample opportunity to insult reporters, bark orders to the government officials around him, most of whom spend considerable amounts of their microphone time telling Trump and the American people what a great job he's doing. Nobody's better at that than the vice president. Denied his usual campaign rallies in primary states and red states, these daily media briefings were Trump's new venue, a new place for his people to tell him and the nation what a great job he's doing. The briefings have also provided an opportunity for the president to condemn and ridicule the free press, calling NBC's White House correspondent of four years a terrible reporter. Peter Alexander had committed the offense of asking the nation's leader what he might say to Americans who were scared. The briefings were Trump's opportunity to try to rewrite history, hoping voters would forget the things he'd said to brush off the serious threat we're all facing. I felt it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic, Trump claimed, just two days after he'd said it would, quote, go away. White House staffers were shaken by last week's report from London's Imperial College, producing as many as two million deaths in the U.S., two million deaths in the U.S. If steps were not taken to curb the outbreak, and that a million would die with only half measures. Trump was finally shaken when he heard from business leaders panicking over the Wall Street meltdown. These business leaders, who are so important to Trump, told him to get it together that the world is collapsing while he seemed unconcerned. Sources say Trump felt more in command after that Rose Garden news conference that followed his Oval Office debacle, even though multiple errors were made in both appearances. The website, he said, would be online more than a week ago, is still in development. But to Trump, things were back on track, so he walked with confidence into what had been Mike Pence's daily media briefings and declared himself a wartime president. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss points out, waging a war is not the same thing as fighting an illness. Still, the poll numbers on Trump's handling of this crisis were on the rise. At least until Friday, when the president stepped in it again by offering false hope with an unapproved and somewhat dangerous drug that was meant for something other than the virus at hand. Standing over Trump's left shoulder was Dr. Fauci, smirking a bit and covering his face to try to hide his amusement at the president calling the State Department the Deep State Department. Later, Dr. Fauci would step to the mic to say there's only anecdotal evidence the malaria drug Trump had promised will work for coronavirus patients, that it had not been approved for such use and that it needed more study. Also later, reporter Peter Alexander would ask the same question of Mike Pence that had so angered Donald Trump. What would you tell Americans who were scared? Pence said what a president would say in this situation. Don't be afraid, said Pence. Be vigilant. It should also be noted that the Major networks all still carry Trump's daily briefing meets campaign rally. Despite the spewing of misinformation, disinformation, insults, and self-congratulation, the media's most pressing role right now is to get out the facts, not the fever dreams of an unreliable president. The live coverage of the daily briefings must end because the networks running them are participating in Trump's disinformation campaign. There is hope on that front today, as NBC and CNN producers reportedly say 
they will start cutting away from those daily briefings when the president of the United States begins to lie or launch attacks on his political opponents and the media. When Trump responds to criticism of his handling of this crisis, he frequently points out that he shut down travel from China early on. And while that was a good move, it was, for a while, his only move as the virus spread around the world and into the U.S. It also gave him a scapegoat, China, and more generally, foreigners. From crime to public health, Trump's go-to is foreigners. He has made it a point to call COVID-19 a foreign virus, and more often, China virus. Photographers captured part of Trump's script, and on it he'd crossed out the word corona and replaced it with Chinese. With a Sharpie, of course. A short time later, Asian Americans began to fear for their safety, and with good reason. A San Francisco woman, walking to her gym, was followed by a man who was shouting expletives at her about China. She kept walking. But waiting at a crosswalk, he caught up with her, and stared at her, and then spat in her face. In another documented incident, a woman removed her face mask, shouted F you to an Asian American man in a grocery store, and then coughed in his face. Muslim Americans can feel their pain, having experienced the same hatred and abuse after Trump's remarks and his Muslim ban. But now it's a time of worry for another group of Americans, those of Asian ancestry. It's estimated there have been some 150 such aggressions so far. A study by San Francisco State University found a 50% rise in the number of news stories about anti-Asian acts in the month of February when Trump was hammering away at the China virus. Reports of aggression against Asian Americans are coming in by the dozens every day now. Edward Chu says many people covered their mouths and noses with their shirts when they saw him at Home Depot where he was buying face masks and goggles for his staff at the Manhattan Hospital, where Edward Chu is the head of the emergency department. Three men in their 20s followed him to his car. This time, fortunately, it ended there. Half the seafood export orders from Vietnam have been canceled. Business at Asian restaurants in the U.S. also cut in half before all restaurants were closed. Trump's repeated use of Chinese virus has caused this surge of distrust, this surge of xenophobia, which has been his theme. The promise of a wall paid for by Mexico helped get him elected to keep out the rapists and the drug dealers. Chinese virus was helping him shift the blame for this crisis. On Tuesday, we learned the president had put in a call to South Korea's president to ask for help with the massive shortage of medical equipment in the U.S., and South Korea has agreed to give that help. Over the weekend, Trump offered U.S. help to North Korea's Kim Jong-un, hoping it would improve relations with the North. It didn't. Kim refused. But the pandemic has been an opportunity for the Trump administration to pursue its agenda under the guise of crisis response. The White House didn't stop at rescuing 7,300 Peace Corps volunteers from overseas. It brought them home and fired them. The Trump administration also made it easier for non-union members who enjoy union benefits to stop paying their union dues, citing the pandemic. 
Trump's Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, has tried to use the crisis to dump the Dodd-Frank protections that were put in place to prevent another Wall Street collapse like the one in 2008. And at least at first, the White House backed a Republican Senate plan to bail out large corporations with interest-free, no-strings loans, debts the Treasury Secretary could forgive later. The plan would have handed big business a half trillion dollars, no rules, just right. The Trump plan would have also given $50 billion to the airlines without a requirement that they keep and keep paying their employees. Billions would also go to aircraft maker Boeing, despite its recent self-made failures. The other airlines and major corporations have used their tax breaks not for their employees, but to buy back company stock to boost its value. Over the last five years, these same airlines have paid $45 billion to their stockholders, which is about the same amount the airlines are now asking of the taxpayers, and that's if you ignore the $750 million in bonuses they gave to their executives with the Trump tax cut. Bloomberg News reports that 96% of the tax breaks enjoyed by major corporations under the Trump tax plan have been spent on dividends and bonuses, 96%. Trickle down. The Trump White House has also used the Surgeon General to deny due process to asylum seekers, and it's used the crisis to stonewall our constitutionally mandated congressional oversight. The White House told the House Oversight Committee that no one from its task force would testify about how the crisis is being handled because they were too busy to spare one person for one hour. The administration's refusal to abide by the rules of congressional oversight is not new. We've seen it since the start of the Mueller investigation. The crisis is the latest excuse for the Trump administration not to cooperate with Congress on any level, not even in a national crisis. During the crisis, the Trump administration sometimes succeeds and sometimes fails in seeing what it can get away with. This past week, Bill Barr's Justice Department asked Congress to make a law that lets chief judges hold people without a trial and to suspend other constitutionally protected rights during this national crisis. Absolutely not, said left-wing Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Over my dead body, said right-wing Republican Mike Lee. The DOJ is asking Congress to let any chief judge of a district court pause proceedings, quote, whenever the district court is fully or partially closed by virtue of any natural disaster, civil disobedience, or any other emergency situation. Trump had recently declared an emergency. And Barr was proposing the suspension of our constitutionally guaranteed habeas corpus, the right of the accused to face their accuser and the opportunity to ask to be released pending trial. Quoting the head of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, that means you could be arrested and never brought before a judge until they decide the emergency or civil disobedience is over. I find that absolutely terrifying, he says, adding that it's not something that should happen in a democracy. But Trump has said that Article 2 of the Constitution gives him the power to do whatever he wants and that Congress does not have the power to impeach him. And that has people worried about him and his administration pursuing more power under the fog of this crisis. In Kentucky, the Republican state government is using the coronavirus emergency measures that include a new photo ID requirement to make it harder for many people to vote. They have outlawed the use of photo IDs issued by other states, even if the voter is registered in Kentucky. People without IDs can only vote if they meet one or two specific requirements, and 
The bill allows people without a photo ID to vote if the poll worker recognizes them. Kentucky lawmakers made these changes after closing the state capitol building to the public on account of coronavirus. This is a war against an invisible enemy, as Trump has said. Life may be very much like it was during World War II for a while. And Trump has declared himself a wartime president and claims he has invoked wartime powers. But we've seen little indication he's using those powers. Trump first spoke of the Defense Production Act a week ago yesterday. It's a law passed by Congress at the start of the Korean War, and it gives presidents extraordinary powers. Among other things, he can order, force American industries to make sure that the nation has the equipment it needs for a crisis such as this. Enough ventilators, enough respirators, enough masks and gowns and gloves. But Trump has resisted using that power, saying American business was stepping up, volunteering, offering equipment without being ordered to do so. Unfortunately, the anticipated needs of hospitals are far from being met, and Trump continues to resist using this order. He claims he's used the law, but there's no evidence of that. With 13% of medical personnel also catching the virus, they have begged for more equipment. When we need something, we'll use the law, said Trump of the Defense Protection Act. The thing is, we do need something. We need lots of somethings, masks, beds, ventilators, respirators, and not just in the U.S., but around the globe. The World Health Organization says the world is facing a significant shortage of medical supplies. And people are going to die, said New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. They don't have to, he added, if we could get the support we're asking for. Instead of that federal support, which would be possible if the president would use the Defense Production Act, states and hospitals are now competing against each other, trying to outbid each other, told to fight it out among themselves. Trump has been under pressure from business, the United States Chamber of Commerce, not to actually use the act he says he's enacted. He's also under pressure from governors to use the DPA to force businesses to quickly make what we need. And even though he has the power to do what other wartime presidents have done, Trump believes that's not how we do things in this free market economy. As a self-proclaimed wartime president, Trump is refusing to use his wartime powers. And this week, we learned from Politico that Trump not only disbanded the National Security Council's pandemic response team in his first year in office, we learned that the Trump administration has, from the start of this threat, ignored the 69-page pandemic playbook that had been left behind. It's officially called Playbook for Early Response to High-Consequence Emerging Infections, Disease Threats, and Biological Incidents. Quoting that playbook, the U.S. government will use all powers at its disposal to prevent, slow, or mitigate the spread of an emerging infectious disease threat. It continues, the American public will look to the U.S. government for action. Early coordination is key. Communications through a single federal spokesperson is critical. A sharp contrast to the multiple voices and mixed messages coming from the Trump administration. In the early days, the new Trump administration even took part in tabletop exercises in which it was told how to respond to a pending pandemic. All of the lessons learned in that have been ignored. There were guidelines for this, and the Trump administration has, from the start, ignored them. Nobody ever expected a thing like this, said Trump on Fox News Tuesday of this week. 
Had they not ignored these guidelines, the U.S. pandemic response would have begun, according to that handbook, two months ago. Now people are dying and hospitals are overwhelmed and we're not even to the peak of this thing yet. While more than half the country is now under stay-at-home orders, Trump, against the advice of governors and medical experts, continues to refuse to issue such an order for the nation as has been done in other countries. With only a patchwork of shutdowns in the U.S., with nearly half the country not shut down and without travel restrictions, the virus would continue to spread from one place to another and without a national shutdown. Italy is a prime example of what happens after only incremental shutdowns. South Korea is a prime example of what can happen with a total shutdown. But to Trump, this is personal. Tweeting yesterday afternoon, the lamestream media is trying to get me to keep our country closed in the hope it will be detrimental to my election success. The real people, tweeted Trump, want to get back to work ASAP. Even worse than refusing a stay-at-home order, Trump is also defying medical advice by declaring he wants the country back in business on April 12th in time for Easter. Our people don't want to be locked into a house or apartment, he told Fox viewers on Tuesday, adding, we're not built that way. Trump had grown impatient with being confined and figured everyone else had to. He said cabin fever and a crippled economy would hurt the nation more than the virus that could kill millions. He claimed without evidence that people would commit suicides by the thousands if they were kept cooped up. Incorrectly referring to this new coronavirus as the flu, Trump claimed, quote, you're going to lose more people by putting a country into a massive recession. Public health officials, stunned by Trump's plan to reopen the nation, just as the number of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. would be nearing its peak, even the Pentagon says the numbers continue to grow. At the daily briefing, Dr. Fauci said a back-to-work directive would not apply to hot spots like New York and that there might be flexibility. But Trump, as he had said hours earlier on Fox News, was firm about that April 12th date. It should be noted that because Trump did not shut down businesses and gatherings across the U.S., he has no power to lift the stay-at-home orders that have locked down more than half the nation. Those orders were given by state governors, and only they have the power to lift those orders. With no thought to Jews or other religions, Trump thought everyone would be happy to get out of the house and gather together at church on Easter Sunday when the contagion was near its peak because what could possibly go wrong? He said he picked April 12th because he thought turning everyone loose at Easter would be a beautiful thing. This not only shocked the medical community, it shocked governors, including several Republican governors who said the only real way to save the economy was to get over this damned virus first. The Republican governors of Texas and Ohio have begged him not to do this. Joe Biden called it potentially catastrophic. Medical experts warned that hands touching hands, again at the height of contagion, would set off a second and worse wave of infection. They warned that the virus would peak around May 1st, nearly three weeks before the number of infections would reach their peak. And although he said he wouldn't start holding his rallies again, Trump would be able to do so. What could possibly go wrong? They're only his enthusiastic voters. And although he said Easter is important to him, Trump was more focused on the Dow Jones and getting people back to work, lives and health be damned. We can socially distance ourselves and go to work, said Trump, adding, and you'll have to work a bit harder. 
You clean your hands five times more than you used to. You don't have to shake hands anymore. Trump claimed the virus is no more dangerous than the flu, and he seemed willing to accept a certain number of additional deaths. People die from the flu, said Trump, but we've never closed down the country for the flu. Trump obviously hadn't thought about the 1918 pandemic. He obviously hadn't thought about the millions of people who would, on his orders, pour into subways and onto buses and trains, touching rails and each other with a back-to-work order that he doesn't have the power to make anyway. Let's see where he stands on, say, April 10th. Let's see where public opinion stands on April 10th. If he still insists on reopening the country, as the head of the Pandemic Disease Preparedness Center at the University of Washington put it, this is no time to be planning to relax the U.S. social distancing measures. The man who headed the Trump administration FDA during its first two years says, so long as COVID-19 spreads uncontrolled, older people will die in historic numbers. Middle-aged folks doomed to prolonged ICU stays for fights of their lives. Hospitals will be overwhelmed, and most Americans terrified to leave homes, eat out, take the subway, or go to the park, end quote. And as the head of the Consortium of Universities for Global Health put it, President Trump will have blood on his hands. And the so-called Fox News Channel will be right there with him. Fox shifted at one point from this virus response is a Democratic hoax to this threat is real. After Trump declared a national emergency, that's when Fox shifted. Fox is where Trump also got the idea to reopen the country prematurely. Earlier this week, the Fox pundits were prodding the president to get businesses open again and people back to work. Fox is where Trump heard the phrase, the cure is worse than the disease. Trump first repeated that phrase on Twitter just a few hours later. Not long after that, Trump's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, was on Fox saying the cure can't be worse than the disease. Meanwhile, Fox's Laura Ingram was tweeting that these decisions shouldn't be left to doctors, quoting her, in one week, we need to be heading back to work, schools, stores, restaurants, and churches with new protocols. Fox's Britt Hume said he thinks older people should sacrifice their lives for the sake of this country's economy. And then both Fox News' Glenn Beck and some other right-wing politicians started pitching the notion that older Americans who are the most susceptible to the disease would be willing to die to help the economy for their children. The aforementioned Texas lieutenant governor is 73, and he said he'd be willing to take one for the team. Several Fox hosts, including those over 70, chimed in with the same idea, that old people should die to restore Trump's economy. Republicans who have opposed abortion, claiming that every life is precious. Republicans who have opposed Black Lives Matter, saying that all lives matter. We're now saying that the lives of older people don't matter. And they're saying it on Fox News. The Nielsen TV ratings people show the median age of the Fox News Channel viewer is 67. Fox was telling its over 60 crowd to be willing to die for the cause, as were Republicans, including Trump, through his ill-conceived notion of everyone in church on April 12th. Yesterday, on the advice of Dr. Fauci, Trump walked back his Easter deadline a bit, saying it may only apply in some locations. Fauci says it shows Trump is at least flexible, despite his firm declarations that clash with sound medical advice. Salon.com's Bob Seska believes it's this age of anti-intellectualism that's gotten us into our recent dilemmas, and he makes it clear that the pandemic he sees is one of idiocy. 
Bob? Thank you, Buzz. I'm old enough to remember when the movie Dumb and Dumber came out and a national debate was launched around the question of whether the dumbing down of America was underway, with Hollywood comedies leading our alleged descent into stupidity. In hindsight, it was never about Jim Carrey's movies in the 1990s. The reason we're here, with the world's most idiotic excuse for a president and all of the nightmares he's manifested, isn't because kids thought Beavis and Butthead were role models. Stupid people weren't manufactured by movies or cartoons. Stupid people were cultivated by the Republican Party and the conservative entertainment complex. Turns out shadowy characters like Newt Gingrich, Roger Ailes, and Karl Rove noticed there was indeed a forgotten demographic in this country that could be exploited to not only fuel and invigorate the modern conservative movement, but it could also generate ratings for Fox News Channel, as well as its cousins on the AM radio dial. For years now, the Republican Party has been accumulating a voting block of easily led, easily deceived Americans who, thanks to clever marketing and effective propaganda pumped osmotically into their soft skulls around the clock, would remain fiercely loyal to the men and women who continue to brazenly exploit their dumbness to this day. Rewinding as far back as the early 1980s, the sucker demo has been systematically reassured that being slack-jawed ignoramuses is something to be proud of. Dumbness, the Republicans told their emerging base, is even patriotic. The culmination of this recruitment effort has been the election of Donald Trump, the most corrupt, vile, and intellectually incurious dingbat to ever haul his ponderous bulk into the Oval Office. Trump never would have been elected as a younger man, even in 2000 when he first thought about running, because the brains of around 40% of registered voters hadn't been sufficiently tenderized yet. Some but not all. The process of tenderization is easy to trace through its continuum. Start with Ronald Reagan, then Dan Quayle, then George W. Bush, then Sarah Palin, and finally Trump. I reckon the next step in this de-evolution will either be a real housewife or Eric Trump. Each subsequent character is less smart than the one before, and each one is increasingly reliant upon the stupids being cultivated by the conservative news media. George Carlin famously observed that our stupidest politicians are the consequence of our stupidest voters. Garbage in, garbage out, Carlin noted. You have to first create the idiot voters before they can elect the truly idiotic leaders. So by the time Trump stepped up to the podium to ejaculate copious streams of churlish insanity into the atmosphere, his disciples were ready and waiting like baby birds starving for their daily dose of semi-digested crapola. The consequence of this plot has been the empowerment of unapologetic dipshits who now have their paws grappled onto the levers of power, a position they never should have been allowed to acquire. Trump is the messiah and the mouthpiece to an entire population of nincompoops who are setting the political and policy agenda in this country, even though they possess no understanding of the nuances or complexities of the systems they're monkeying around with. The very fact that Trump was elected in the first place proves my theory. An informed, rational voting population doesn't hand the nuclear codes to a game show host, at least not a game show host as disturbed and broken as Trump. It just doesn't happen. And now, because of this profoundly misguided population of dinguses and their profoundly frivolous votes in 2016, we're stuck with a whiny neo-fascist who thinks windmills cause cancer, a thieving crook who, this week, mocked a senator from his own party for possibly contracting the COVID-19 virus. The reason why this pandemic and the financial crisis it precipitated are so disastrous for us and our national future is because of this man and his dummy base.
But at no point did I think these crackpots and halfwits would actually endorse the notion of suicide in order to reignite the economy and therefore the electoral chances of their cult leader. Over the weekend, Trump began to frame the pandemic as a war, not unlike the war on terrorism, positioning himself as a war president fighting against an invisible enemy. In his words, the likes of which no one has ever seen before. Then, on Monday, Generalissimo Walnut Brain declared that he wanted to end the war in five days, or maybe by Easter, irrespective of whether this so-called invisible enemy had been defeated. In other words, a full-on surrender, because, I guess, fighting the war involved too much damage to the economy and thus his re-election chances. And now, this party of mouth-breathing knuckleheads is suggesting that the only way to win the war is for older Americans to break the isolation orders and potentially be infected with COVID-19 to save the stock market. There aren't any clever metaphors or portmanteaus to adequately describe the blinding stupidity of all of this. Those of us who know better already get it, and those of us who don't get it will probably end up on a ventilator coughing up blood or worse before all of this is over. The pandemic of 2020 has been made worse by a pandemic of imbecility. Millions of our fellow Americans who believe the wild conspiracy theories marketed by Breitbart and Donald Trump Jr. Millions of Americans who think the virus is a hoax. Millions of Americans who think this is nothing more than another flu. One for which we have no immunity, no vaccines, and nowhere near enough hospitals to cover everyone. My desperate hope is that out of all of this we begin to roll back this decades-long plan to put the biggest dumb shits in America in charge of important things. I used to believe Mike Judge's idiocracy was a cautionary fairy tale that could never really happen here. Boy, was I wrong. Trump is President Camacho, and he's a few more days away from fighting the virus with electrolytes. Let's all pledge today, if we make it safely out of these simultaneous catastrophes, to make America think again. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. As equally shocking as Trump's target date of Easter and the right-wing media's embrace of it is that Trump's approval rating on his handling of this crisis was 60%, according to Gallup, and his overall approval rating hit a new high for his presidency, 49%. He's never quite made 50. America has always rallied around its presidents during wartime, even in modern times, including Nixon and Vietnam and George W. Bush after 9-11. Trump, who has proven less of a leader than New York's Andrew Cuomo or California's Gavin Newsom, has gotten a coronavirus bump in the polls. Cuomo was presiding over about half the country's cases and a city in which the number of cases was doubling every three days and many Americans began watching Cuomo's briefings for reliable information. Even Trump's White House aides have been watching Cuomo's news conferences and they have noticed the contrast between Cuomo's concise and well-informed straight talk to the ramblings of a president who has divided his camera time between contradicting medical experts and lashing out at reporters. Unlike the president, Governor Cuomo has spoken more like a traditional leader. Quote, it's going to be hard, there is no doubt. But at the same time, it's going to be okay. There is going to be food. 
transportation systems are going to function and the pharmacies are going to be open. There's not going to be chaos. There's not going to be anarchy. Order will be maintained. Life is going to go on. Different, but it is going to go on. So take a deep breath on all of that. We're going to overcome this, and America will be greater for it. We're all Americans. Nothing else matters at this time. End quote from Andrew Cuomo. But Trump's bump in the polls makes his disinformation even more deadly. Trump can continue to get away without shouting the doctors and the experts he figures because the poll numbers tell him it's working. A CBS News poll, meanwhile, shows that nearly 6 in 10 Americans think the government's fight against the coronavirus is, quote, going badly. Time will tell if his handling of this crisis will keep voters on the Trump bandwagon as the effects are felt after more people fall ill and die and as unemployment soars into the millions. This week's unemployment report from the government showed this morning that 3.3 million people had filed this week. The numbers are in, and in this medically necessary shutdown, they're likely to go much higher. They may already be much higher. One million people filed in California just in the last two weeks. A new report from the Economic Policy Institute says as many as 14 million jobs could be lost before this summer is over. During Trump's town hall meeting on Fox, six more people died, lifting the death toll on Tuesday afternoon to over 600. The U.S. is now reporting more new cases per day than any other nation and with a much sharper infection curve than Italy. Earlier in this report, I mentioned that some senators had mysteriously sold millions of dollars in stocks right after they'd gotten a classified briefing on coronavirus and right before the bottom fell out of the stock market. This combination of facts carried with it the strong aroma of insider trading, which is a federal felony. In addition to Republican Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr, millions in stocks were sold by Georgia Republican Kelly Loeffler, Oklahoma Republican Senator Jim Inhofe, and California Democrat Dianne Feinstein. To pour salt in the wound, just days after North Carolina's Richard Burr learned what he'd learned and sold off up to $1.7 million in stocks, Burr wrote an opinion piece for the Fox News website indicating the U.S. was, quote, better prepared than ever before for the virus, despite what he had likely been told in that classified briefing. Two weeks after he sold the stock, Burr gave a speech, finally admitting the virus could cause major disruption in the U.S. and likened the virus to the 1918 influenza pandemic. Senator Anafi sold $400,000 worth of stocks three days after the briefing. Kelly Loeffler sold 27 stocks worth millions of dollars on the day of the briefing. Senator Feinstein sold between 2 and $6 million in stocks one week after the briefing. All of those sales came when stocks were at a record high, when their value was greater than it had ever been. All four of these lawmakers have faced calls to resign, but they're all still here while the media has moved on to other stories. Senator Burr, who admits this looks bad, has asked the Senate Ethics Committee to investigate him and the others hoping that a Senate of understanding fellow Republicans would clear his name. This sort of behavior has become more acceptable in the Trump era. When Trump was asked this past week about how non-symptomatic professional athletes are getting tests while others waiting in line can't get them, his answer? Perhaps that's the story of life. 
What Trump seemed to be saying is that's the way it is when it comes to the rich and the poor. But now, more than ever, under Trump, that's the story of life. It took a while, it was difficult, and it was sometimes quite ugly. But in a rare bipartisan effort, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate agreed with one another and with the president on a relief package that will cost well over $2 trillion, perhaps $4 trillion. The bill passed just before midnight, and it passed unanimously. Democrats had twice blocked a Republicans-only bill that scrimped on benefits for working people while lavishing big business with what could be spent any way the corporations wished, with the caveat that the Treasury Secretary, in this case Trump's Steven Mnuchin, could forgive those loans for any reason. Democrats, led by Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, got most of what they had held out for, including adding the provision that the only way a company could avoid repaying their loan would be to spend it on the workers' paychecks. The airlines and airports got the tens of billions they'd requested, but with the same strings attached that had not been attached in the original Republicans-only bill. There is now independent oversight and inspector general to keep everyone honest and to watch out for abuse of the system and outright fraud All the data on who got money and how much will be on the public record for transparency. So much for Trump's claim, I'll be the oversight. No, he won't. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell negotiated on behalf of Senate Republicans. It was Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin who negotiated on behalf of the White House. That's interesting because it means Mnuchin signed off on a provision in the bill that blocks Trump, members of his family, other administration officials, and members of Congress from getting these coronavirus loans. Trump hotels will have to absorb the hit. The bill also boosts unemployment benefits, adding 600 bucks a week for four months on top of the typical rate. The bill makes more people eligible for unemployment benefits. Chuck Schumer calls it unemployment insurance on steroids. 80% of Americans will be getting relief money from the government. The bill includes $1,200 checks, one check for now, for individuals making under $75,000 a year, more for families with children. Married couples under $150K get $2,400. Income is determined by whatever is reflected in your most recent tax filing, 2019 or 2020, whichever you filed more recently. This year's deadline for filing and paying, by the way, has been delayed to July 15th. Student loans are on hold until October under this bill, without interest charges. There's even more money for child care and domestic violence shelters, which may be needed more than ever for spouses stuck at home with their abusive partners. The bill also includes nearly $370 billion in small business loans, plus $500 billion for the states, cities, and hospitals. The bill limits compensation for highly paid employees who work at businesses getting federal assistance, and stock buybacks are banned. This time, Congress had already passed two smaller relief bills, $8.3 billion for the health care system and $100 billion to boost paid sick leave and unemployment, along with free coronavirus testing. Now, this bill of 2 to $4 trillion. The bill restores funding that was cut by the Trump administration for the United States Peace Corps. See above. It cuts $88 million to get back on its feet so it can once again send volunteers overseas to help stop diseases before they come here. And as we are living right now, they do come here. 
and the Centers for Disease Control would get nearly $4.5 billion to fight the virus after its budget had been cut by the Trump administration. $1.5 billion of that money will go to states and cities for epidemiology, lab capacity, infection control, mitigation, communications, and preparedness. $27 billion would go toward the development of a coronavirus vaccine and treatments. $400 million would go toward keeping the 2020 election viable in the wake of this pandemic. Many states are already moving to absentee or mail-in ballots. This is less money than Democrats had requested, but a fair start. It is not a perfect package, but it is a pretty good start. Apparently, the best the two sides could agree on, and it's passed. The president says he'll absolutely sign it. Joe Biden has endorsed this legislation, while Bernie Sanders who did vote for it, says it does too much for corporations and not enough for people. Nancy Pelosi has also endorsed the bill, and the House is supposed to be voting on the new bill tomorrow, possibly with a few changes, including more help for hard-hit New York. Some House members may weigh in by video link. With several lawmakers now testing positive for coronavirus, the lawmakers have been looking for safe ways to hold the vote. Once they have done their due diligence with this rescue package, lawmakers, all of them, are eager to go home and stay home. After this, Congress may be in recess for some time, perhaps until the worst danger has passed. Once it is signed by the president, Trump says he will sign it, the relief checks could be going out in about three weeks for direct deposit taxpayers. It could be nearly a month for checks by mail. Trump had repeatedly insisted on sending out the checks on April 6th, but bureaucracy won't be able to meet that by most accounts. There are so many things worth reporting as the news rolls in every minute. Here, in somewhat random order, are some other developments this week. It appears the shutdown order in New York is slowing the rate of illness. On Sunday, the number of people hospitalized there doubled every two days. The numbers were down on Monday, and the case doubling was every seven days by Tuesday. Governor Cuomo says he expects to have 45,000 cases on his hands by the end of this week, although he says social distancing measures appear to be working with a leveling off of new cases, even as the numbers remain high. Dr. Deborah Bricks of the White House coronavirus team has ordered everyone who's recently departed New York City, New Jersey, or Connecticut to self-quarantine for 14 days from the day of their departure. Many New Yorkers headed for other states, most of them, in a beeline for Florida. In Florida, Governor DeSantis has ordered everyone recently arrived from New York to go into quarantine for 14 days from the day of their arrival. But DeSantis has refused to issue a stay-at-home order for the state, even though it may be next after New York as the epicenter for the U.S. pandemic. Other Republican-led states have taken equally stubborn stances. The governor of Mississippi is not worried, saying his state is not China. Mississippi is conveniently located between Florida and Louisiana. In fact, Mississippi's Republican Governor Tate Reeves has just reversed the stay-at-home orders issued by cities and counties in his state. We should know within two weeks how these refusals to lock down work out. We've learned that more than half the EMS first responders in New Orleans are out with the virus and that nearly 3,000 EMS workers are out in New York City. Hundreds of NYPD officers are sidelined. Louisiana has been declared a disaster area to qualify it for federal assistance that this time has nothing to do with a hurricane. 
The Pentagon stepped up again and is building field hospitals in New York, Seattle, and elsewhere. The city of Chicago has purchased five hotels to provide more hospital beds for when the inevitable overflow occurs in its hospitals. New York City will run out of ICU beds tomorrow. Hotels may be a way to produce more beds for patients since nearly 70% of hotel rooms were vacant this week across America. Chicago PD is now issuing citations to those who violate the shelter-in-place order. In New York, FEMA's been asked to set up emergency morgues in refrigerated tents. In Madrid, an indoor ice rink volunteered its services as a morgue. New York's Four Seasons Hotel is now providing free housing to medical workers responding to that city's pandemic. Overseas, the movement of U.S. troops has been paused on an order announced by the defense secretary. Coronavirus cases have now turned up in Middle East combat zones, and three sailors have tested positive aboard a ship that's at sea. The number of cases is rising at veterans' hospitals. The Supreme Court is still meeting, but by video teleconference. All of Britain is ordered to stay home. Britain's National Health Service asked for a quarter million volunteers, but over twice that many Brits stepped up. A half million volunteered. In New York, 40,000 volunteers have come forward for that city's crisis. Med students at NYU are being offered early diplomas if they'll dive in to help. Uh, similar offers have been made in California and New York. Over 100 have already said yes. Tens of thousands of retired American medical personnel have come forward. Immigrant doctors have volunteered to help the U.S. military fight the pandemic, but the Trump Pentagon won't allow it, as would have been allowed in a previous administration. 71-year-old Prince Charles, heir to the throne, has tested positive. Here at home, singer Jackson Brown has tested positive. The 1.3 billion people in India are under a three-week lockdown the country's leader saying that failing to shut down for 21 days could set the country back 21 years. Spain is now having more deaths than China. Nearly 11,000 National Guard troops have been activated throughout the country helping to deliver food in hard-hit communities and helping local first responders along with providing transportation to health care facilities. Across the country, jails and prisons are releasing thousands of inmates and or refusing to accept new ones as they try against all odds to achieve social distancing behind bars. Jails and prisons are described as disasters waiting to happen in this virus crisis, as are the refugee camps. As the virus and the reality of it sink in, in Florida... Gun sales were up again this week. Based on the number of background checks, they're up 400% from this same week last year, up another 128% just this week. We learned of a group of young adults in Kentucky who held a coronavirus party that included no social distancing or hand sanitizer. We learned that one of them has now tested positive. Quoting Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear, this one makes me mad. And it's not just Kentucky. Police in Wisconsin have not decided what charges to file against a woman who licked the door handle in the frozen food section of a Festival Foods grocery store as a protest to the uproar over coronavirus. In St. Louis, a 26-year-old punk posted a video of himself on social media licking his way across a row of deodorant sticks on a grocery shelf at Walmart. Who's scared of coronavirus? He sneered into the camera. 
he has now been charged with the felony of making terroristic threats. And a 50-year-old New Jersey man coughed near an employee at a Wegmans grocery store on Sunday. The employee asked the man to move away. Instead, he moved to within three feet of her, leaned in, and coughed again intentionally. He then told the employee she had coronavirus and laughed. He is now charged with making terrorist threats, harassment, and obstruction of law enforcement. The Justice Department in Washington has cleared the way for terrorism charges against anyone who intentionally spreads or threatens to spread the virus. Medically, we seem to have learned two or three interesting new things. First, that 80% of the hospitalizations for coronavirus in the U.S. involve people between the ages of 18 and 65, 80% of the cases in the hospital. It's not just for older people anymore, according to figures from the U.S. and Europe. It remains true that 80% of the deaths are in people over the age of 65. New Orleans spike in cases appears related to this year's Mardi Gras, where people gather to catch beads and spittle and sweat from the passing floats and from each other. New Orleans is now getting new cases faster than any place else on Earth and expects to run out of ventilators in about a week. Until they were dispersed, young people packed the beaches of Florida and California over spring break while many walked the Tidal Basin in D.C. to look at cherry blossoms. Again, even in younger patients, this coronavirus causes permanent lung damage. We learned the incubation period can be two or three weeks or more, meaning our case numbers now are artificially low. The number of cases could be as many as 11 times higher than what the numbers reflect. Hospitals in Atlanta and Detroit are already full. The other interesting new thing we learned this week, that losing your sense of smell and subsequently your sense of taste appears to be a symptom that the COVID-19 illness is setting in. If you suddenly cannot smell your shampoo or a soiled diaper, you may have coronavirus. Researchers also report this virus does not appear to be mutating much at all, which means it will be easier for them to find a vaccine that's as long-lasting as it is effective. And we learned that people on blood pressure meds appear to have an increased risk of COVID-19 infection and that social distancing can reduce the spread of the virus by as much as 99%. In some states with legal marijuana, the dispensaries have been classified alongside grocery stores as among the essential services that should remain open. And at least we have a space force. The planet gets a breather and tales from the toilet tissue aisle in the final segment after this. There are expenses related to the production of these programs and producing over 12,000 words in today's report was a considerable task. So this newscast is free to you, but not free to make. If you'd like to help in this effort, please click on the PayPal donate button in the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzzburbank News and Comment. Some kind listeners schedule a monthly payment. You may need some things you can't go out for. You may need books or music or movies. There's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up blocker to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and helpful to do so. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, Thank you. We no longer have a White House pandemic response team, but we do have a Space Force. And 
It was to launch from Florida this afternoon with a military communication satellite on board. Due to the virus and Florida's restrictions on public gatherings, the military is barring both the media and the public from today's launch. The stay-at-home orders continue to have a positive effect on the environment. Navigation company TomTom says rush hour traffic in New York City dropped 43% since large gatherings were banned on Monday of last week. It's dropped more, obviously, since New York's stay-at-home order. Traffic was down by 64% in Milan, Italy, down 67% in Rome, China's carbon dioxide emissions dropped by 20% during its shutdown, according to NASA and European satellite data. But Rob Jackson, an environmental scientist at Stanford, says he won't be celebrating, saying we need sustained declines, not an anomalous year. And he says it's certainly not worth a pandemic now. On a brighter note, the world's wind power capacity increased by nearly 20% last year, a new record high. The new powers being generated by wind farms in China and in the U.S. on land and offshore. Because of the pandemic, the industry is expecting to make less forward progress this year. In other medical news, the number of children killed this year by the flu is the highest it's been since the H1N1 pandemic 11 years ago. This season so far, 149 people under the age of 18 have died from influenza. That number is second only to children who were taken by H1N1. The CDC says at least 38 million Americans have had the flu this season with nearly 400,000 in hospital beds. Adults and children together, 23,000 have died this year either from influenza or the pneumonia that it caused. And the season is not over. The numbers were up again last week. Most flu cases are avoidable with a vaccination, and yet two out of every five Americans don't get them. Opioid and heroin deaths, meanwhile, are down by just over 4%. Overdoses are down by 13.5%. Still, there were more than 67,000 overdoses in 2018, according to the latest numbers just out from the CDC. Deaths from synthetic opioids were up by 10%. It was a long battle with cancer that took Bill Riflin this week at age 59. Bill was the drummer and sang harmony for R.E.M. And before that, King Crimson. Lead singer Michael Stipe remembered Bill Riflin for, quote, his humor, his relentless curiosity, and, of course, his incredible musical ear. And Kenny Rogers, who dominated both pop and country charts in the 70s, has died at age 81. His often gravelly voice drove ballads like The Gambler and Lucille. His career faded away three years ago in his own battle with cancer. For many boomers, their first exposure to Kenny Rogers was in 1968 with the psychedelic song he recorded with the first edition called Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Condition Was In. Their second and final hit was the Vietnam War-inspired Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town. He would later own a chain of fried chicken joints. Rogers broke up with the first edition and three of his wives and found himself tens of thousands of dollars in debt at one point until he sold a learn-at-home set of guitar lessons. Kenny Rogers was inspired to shoot for a career in music after seeing a Ray Charles concert in Houston. In Florida, as I recently reported, Pembroke Pines police were persistently pursuing a cow that's, quote, faster than it looks. 
The cow was lurking around I-75 and Sheridan Street in Pembroke Pines, but every time officers approached, it sailed away, clearing fences and making tracks. A talented fence jumper, said the Pembroke Pines police poster. This persistent pursuit has been going on since January. Well, this week, the critter was caught and herded into the fenced field of a fellow who doesn't own the cow but has agreed to board the bovine not until the cows come home, of course, but at least until the cow's owner can be found. Our highway spill of the week took place in Texas, and nobody got seriously hurt. The driver of the truck that went off the highway is fine. His cargo, not so much. Three lanes of traffic had to be shut down while workers tried to clean up 40,000 gallons of Gatorade. Stay thirsty, my friends. People are on edge. In Manchester, New Hampshire, two men got into an argument over loud music. Nobody got hurt, but police have arrested the man who grabbed a a two-and-a-half-foot-long sword to go after the music fan. Some strippers in Oregon, pushed out of the clubs by social distancing, have taken to food delivery, topless food delivery. A group of strippers from Portlandia's Lucky Devil Lounge are still serving that great strip club food through a takeout and delivery with different hours than they're used to, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. The women seductively cover their noses and mouths with surgical masks but fling open their coats at customers' front doors. They've given their new service a clever name. It's not Uber Eats, it's Boober Eats. With everyone staying home now in Italy, one Catholic priest set up his phone to live stream his service to the faithful. He did, however, forget to turn off what's known as an AR filter, which meant he took the form of a variety of cartoon characters changing throughout the service and throughout the feed. One animation made the priests appear he was building his biceps with dumbbells. Another one put him in an astronaut helmet, while another one added a hat and dark sunglasses. After learning of his mistake, the father said, even a laugh is good. And finally, the shelves may be empty of toilet paper, but the paper goods aisle is stocked with stories. A restaurant in Minnesota with business suffering is giving out a roll of toilet tissue with every takeout order over 25 bucks. The owner of the Cambridge Bar and Grill says people not only need the toilet paper, they need the laugh they get when it arrives with a meal. At a Walmart in Springfield, Missouri, customers cheered when a woman gave birth to a baby girl in the toilet paper aisle. The manager held up a sheet for privacy. Customers cheered when a healthy mom and daughter were wheeled to the ambulance just 45 minutes after her water broke. Uh, wet cleanup on the paper goods aisle, please. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.